Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start with this major breaking news story. This afternoon, FBI agents arrested the suspect behind the leak of highly classified and damaging Pentagon memos. 21-year-old Massachusetts Air National Guardsman Jack Tashira was identified after a cascade of shocking news reporting. Reports in The Washington Post, New York Times, and Bellingcat show that Tashira allegedly led a small online chat group on the encrypted platform Discord, often used by gamers. Members of that group that Tashira reportedly dubbed Thug Shaker Central seem to mostly be teenage boys who share a love of guns and military gear. And they describe Tashira as the, quote, undisputed leader of that chat group. The Post also reviewed a video posted by Tashira, who members of the chat group call OG, that seemed to show him yelling anti-Semitic and racial slurs and showing off his gun. Now, those who know Tashira say he was just trying to impress his friends and keep them in the loop on classified intelligence, which he then allegedly swiped from highly sensitive briefing emails and apparently leaked to his small group over the course of several months. The Washington Post interviewed a member of the group of the alleged leaker who spoke on the condition of anonymity. Take a listen. I would not call OG a whistleblower in the slightest. I don't think that there was a goal nor some sort of accomplishment that he was looking for in sharing these documents. Of course, there's some anti-government sentiment. Now, despite Tashira intentions, those documents did indeed become public, global, and they left a trail of serious consequences for the United States, including revelations that the U.S. government spied on allies Ukraine and Israel and South Korea. The documents also seem to show how the CIA recruits agents, and they seem to show uh, an exposure uh, of detrimental U.S. assessments of Ukraine's chances on the battlefield. Now, less than two hours ago, the FBI brought Tashira to their offices right outside Boston. Tashira will make his first court appearance tomorrow in U.S. District Court in Boston. We are covering this story all over the map. Let's bring in CNN's Oren Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. And Oren, uh, just moments ago, the Pentagon spokesman said officials there are treating this leak as a, quote, deliberate criminal act. The Pentagon is making it very clear how they see the leaking of some top secret documents from their perspective. And they wouldn't name a suspect in this case, leaving that up to the Department of Justice. But from their perspective, this was an intentional act to get access to this level of classified documents, top secret and more. And then to put these out there, whether publicly or not, whatever the intention was, this ended up coming out to the world, frankly, with consequences that are still perhaps damaging U.S. national security interests. On Thursday afternoon, the FBI swooping in on Dighton, Massachusetts, a tactical team moving in to arrest 21-year-old Jack Teixeira, member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard, in connection with classified documents leaked online. Today, the Justice Department arrested Jack Douglas Teixeira in connection with an investigation into alleged unauthorized removal, 
retention, and transmission of classified national defense information. The arrest comes after a fast-moving search by the U.S. government only one week after President Joe Biden and other senior U.S. leaders were briefed about the leak that exposed a trove of top-secret documents. The documents were accessible to thousands of people, military and civilian, but the digital trail of information led investigators to a small group for closer scrutiny, allowing the FBI to home in on a suspect. The Pentagon having to explain how such young members of the military have access to such national secrets. You've received training uh, and you will receive uh, an understanding of the rules and requirements that come along with those responsibilities. And you're expected to abide by those rules, regulations and responsibility. It's called military discipline. According to the Washington Post, the man behind the leaks posted the national security secrets for a group of his online acquaintances to see, which CNN could not independently verify. The New York Times arrived at the suspect's house after tracking details online. They spoke to his mother when the suspect appeared to arrive. When they returned to speak to him, another unidentified man at the scene told the Times, he needs to get an attorney if things are flowing the way they're going right now. The feds will be around soon, I'm sure. The documents were leaked on Discord, a chat and messaging platform often used by gamers. The Post spoke with a friend of the man who claimed the leaks began last year, long before they were first made public. I was first made aware of these documents, I want to say about six to eight months ago. I was in a Discord server by the name of Doug Shaker Central. And in this channel, there was classified documents being posted by a user who I will refer to as OG from this point. The documents were often listed as Ukraine versus Russia at first. However, it slowly spiraled into just intelligence about everything. The Pentagon has begun a damage assessment after the information exposed U.S. spying on allies like South Korea and Israel, critical information about Ukrainian military capabilities, top-secret intel about Chinese weapons development. If it indeed it is true that it's a military base, then uh, there's certainly going to be a lot of military officials who have to be called for account. The Biden administration has downplayed the consequences of the leaks, but the question of how to stop someone with top-secret access determined to spread secrets remains unanswered. The concern here is, is people, and people, if they are bent on, on exposing classified information, they'll figure out a way to beat the, the administrative procedures. According to Teixeira's service record, he joined the Air National Guard in September 2019, so about three and a half years ago. He had a job in the field of cyber transport systems, which requires seven and a half weeks of basic military training and then 136 days of technical training. Jake, it is that level of training, that lack of depth, perhaps, that will have to come under scrutiny now as to how he still had access to this level of classification. Mm. Orrin Lieberman of the Pentagon for us. Thank you so much. Let's get right to CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst, John Miller as well as CNN National Security Analyst Steve Hall. John, uh, this doesn't look like a normal arrest. Uh, The sheer number of military vehicles and armed personnel. uh, Walk us through how it all went down. Well, as this developed, the FBI had identified this individual as the suspect within the last couple of days, and they had started to work with the military about how to get him in the box, ask him questions, how to affect this arrest as they were developing this evidence. Today, this comes to a head because uh, Jack Texera lives between his dad's house and his mom's house in this area of uh, Massachusetts, uh, going back and forth between the two locations. Uh, The FBI surveillance teams were on both locations, and the idea was he's supposed to go to work today. We'll follow him to the base. He will be in a secure environment. We can have a superior officer call him to a conference room. Um, you know, we'll know he's unarmed. We'll know um, we have control of the situation. Well, 
That all didn't work. He didn't go to work today. So the surveillance teams on the House were told, you know, when he goes out for a walk, when he shows up, let's pick him up so we can see, you know, he's likely not to be armed. Uh, at that point, the New York Times was knocking on the door of the residence and talking to the mother. And at this point, agents were reporting back to the FBI Boston field office from their surveillance observation posts. Um, there's people, they look like reporters, they're at the door, um, at which point the subject shows up on the set. So a uh, Boston FBI SWAT team in their SWAT gear in an armored vehicle was deployed as the arrest team. The backup teams moved in. They took him into custody. Why all the firepower for a simple, of arrest, a simple arrest of a guy in short pants is reviews of his social media um, posts uh, that he's had online, pictures and other records told them he is the owner of numerous weapons and the prospect of a suspect who was now reading his name online in the New York Times, in news alerts, um, being inside the house, possibly in, inside the house with numerous weapons was the kind of situation, exactly the kind of situation they were looking to avoid. Uh, but they brought the equipment they needed to handle any version of it. And as, um, as it went down, uh, they took advantage of the situation of him uh, showing up in, in front of the House, and um, it all went very quietly. And the FBI just released a statement saying they're conducting continued operations at the suspect's home. John, what are they looking for? So that's the search warrant. You know, I mean, the suspect has multiple locations, the mom's house, the dad's house, and his space at work. So... They'll be executing search warrants at the mom's house, at the dad's house, um, looking for computers, hard drives, thumb drives, uh, cameras, phones, anything that would have been used in the collection, copying, photographing, posting of this material. Uh, they'll probably also want to clear those houses of those weapons, um, assuming that they, are, that they belong to him, whatever their legal status, as part of the search. Steve, you're the former head of Russia operations at the CIS, CIA. Um, what do you think Russian government officials are thinking right now watching all this? Well, Jake, my, I imagine the Russians have been following this for a while because they're very good, as we know, from the past couple of years of watching how the Russians do uh, entries and collection operations against electronic systems. So it, I would be surprised if the Russians hadn't been aware of this sooner. Of course, it's been out there in one, one shape or another uh, for a number of weeks. And so the Russians have been watching this very carefully. One of the things I think that the Russians are probably uh, doing their own damage assessment on is that there's apparently some information that this individual leaked uh, that had to do with uh, collection against Russian targets in inside of Russia, uh, perhaps technical operations. And so I think the Russians are trying to figure out, okay, how did they get access to that? And how do we shut that down? Which is, of course, always the worst case scenario here is, is that when sources and methods are exposed, like this individual does, it's really difficult to pick it up again and collect further against those targets. And Steve, quickly, if you could, uh, the documents leaked uh, seem to also suggest the extent to which the United States has been able to penetrate in an intelligence way uh, the Russian mercenary group, the Wagner uh, group. Uh, that must be a concern for Putin. 
Yeah, absolutely. Again, the Russians are going to look this up and down and say, okay, you know, from what we're seeing uh, publicly on this, where were the leaks? Where did we get had? And how can we close those up? Again, those are counterintelligence questions that the Russians are very good at, and they're going to shut it down. And that's going to inca not incapacitate. That's probably too strong. Going to make it more difficult in the future to collect against those targets, Jake. Yeah, they have Tashira to thank, allegedly. John Miller, Steve Hall, thanks so much. Now to Ireland, where CNN's Phil Mattingly is traveling with President Biden. And Phil, the president's trip was supposed to be Fairly light on policy, but a mess of global proportions has unfolded under his watch. What, what did he have to say? Yeah, and it's a mess that the president and his team have largely kept behind the scenes. The president staying on his schedule, not really answering any questions related to the leak until earlier today. In fact, today he was speaking to the parliament here, a, a big speech, the fourth U.S. president to do so. Right now, he just entered the Dublin Castle for a banquet in his honor. Only two others, Queen Elizabeth uh, and JFK, have had that honor to be the guest of honor there. In between was when the arrest of the suspect actually happened. And it underscores something that I've been told by U.S. officials. The president has been briefed regularly throughout the last several days, kept in the loop on both the investigation, where that stood, but also efforts by his top administration officials to assuage the concerns or try and address some of the concerns from U.S. allies who have either seen their countries mentioned in some of these reports or are concerned that there may be some uh, where they are mentioned. Now, the president, when he was asked about this earlier today and answered the question, alluded to the fact that an arrest was likely forthcoming soon, underscoring just how closely he's been briefed on the developments in the investigation. But he also said something else, that he did not believe that the uh, disclosures up to this point were of great consequence, trying to play down what has come out up to this point. However, you talk to U.S. officials, they make clear top administration officials have been working the phones, working uh, very steadfastly, scrambling to some degree to try and address ally concerns, something that certainly isn't going to end anytime soon, Jake. All right, Phil Mattingly in Dublin uh, with President Biden. Thanks so much. Uh, the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, uh, Mike Turner, Republican of Ohio, joins me now on the phone. Chairman Turner, thanks for joining us. What's the latest uh, that you've learned on uh, the arrest of the suspected le leaker, uh, Jack Tashira, as well as the effort to contain the fallout? Right. So our office was notified that the arrest was imminent. And I, I can tell you that you know, it's a good day, Jake, that we can, can celebrate that the at least the continued threat of, a, of additional leaks from this individual uh, has been stopped. Now, of course, the assessment will have to be done as to all the, the documents and, and where they were that he had released, uh, what uh, needs to be done in mitigating those, uh, but also in, in the question of how did this individual get access to these documents and what policies and procedures need to be changed. I can tell you many members of my committee have already been, been in touch. We need to have hearings as to, you know, what is the, the scope of documents, especially when you have something as volatile as a battlefield of, of, of Ukraine, where these documents could be accessed by someone who appears to, to not be in any chain of, of needing this information. Well, that, that's the question. I mean, obviously there is overclassification. The CIA director said that the other day. That's been a problem in the intelligence community for, for decades, things that don't need to be classified being classified. But this, this material seems very sensitive uh, how would a 21-year-old Air National Guardsman get access to it? You know, it, it's, it's very unclear, Jake, and that, that, is, that, that really is what a lot of the triage is going to have to be here. You know, I was just in Ukraine, as you, you know, last week, and um, the, the upcoming offensive of Ukraine is incredibly important. It's highly sensitive. To have this type of information where someone could be you know, trying to show it to their friends to impress them that, that doesn't appear to have any contribution uh, to the outcome of this, or any need to know is, is what we're going to have to examine and put a stop to.
Did the journalists uh, working on this story at the Washington Post and the New York Times, did they track down this individual before the intelligence community did? I, and I can't answer this for you at this time, but I can tell you that that is, is my my impression that um, you know this is is probably um, concurrent and if not coordinated, you know many times are as uh, as we're trying to, to solve things, uh, people are sharing information, but that the type of, of access that we would have um, that uh, in looking at his disclosure and his his use of the chat rooms and the like are, are such that that probably was his downfall. Do you have any reason to believe that there is anything more nefarious going on than the story that we're being given right now, which is just some irresponsible young man trying to show off before a group of fellow gamers uh, his access to intel? Yeah, not, not at this time. I, I've received briefings from the director of ODI, and I, and um, it, my, the FBI has been in touch with my office, and also DOD has been briefing us. At this time, nobody has indicated that this is anything more uh, than than a uh, than this individual. You know, no matter what procedures you put in, in place, somebody uh, who wants to betray you um, is, is going to have an opportunity to do so. This this gentleman has obviously uh, is, is going to be uh, faced with charges of an espionage, uh, and he's you know the charges are that he's going to have betrayed his country. The chairman of the House Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, Congressman Mike Turner, Republican of Ohio, thank you so much for calling in, sir. We appreciate it. Coming up, I'm going to speak uh, with Chairman Turner's uh, Democratic uh, counterpart, uh, the top Democrat on the intelligence community, uh, Congressman Jim Hines, Democrat of Connecticut. Uh, we're following every angle of this big breaking story and this arrest. How is this kind of classified intelligence tracked? Who else had access to it? I'm going to speak with someone else who has uh, unique insight into U.S. cybersecurity next. Also had a new report revealing U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and how he sold property to the same billionaire Republican who paid for those luxury vacations and trips and, again, did not disclose those sales despite the fact that he was supposed to. The author of this new reporting speaking exclusively on the lead coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back. You are looking at images from earlier today of the arrest of 21-year-old National Guard Airman Jack Tashira, who authorities say leaked troves of highly classified documents over the course of several months, documents that the leak of which have, has damaged U.S. relationships with allies and revealed key pieces of intelligence to foes. Joining us now is Chris Krebs. He's the former director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at the Department of Homeland Security under President Trump. And Chris, um, explain to me how this 21-year-old could have had access to this information. The Air Force says to share his official job is cyber transport systems journeyman. I have no idea what that means. Tell us what it means and how he could have possibly gotten access to this classified information. Right. So in, uh, a cyber transport system specialist is the Air Force recruiter's way of describing an IT specialist role. So these are the folks that, uh, that design, that deploy computer systems, networks, and then maintain them. And it's not just the unclassified systems, but there are cases where they also help uh, manage and maintain and update the systems in the classified spaces, what's known as a SCIF, a sensitive compartmented information facility. It's a special facility that where you can view classified information free of surveillance or leakage. And, you know, I would bet, and this is kind of an Occam's razor approach here, 
is that if he was designated with working on uh, systems in a skiff at a military installation, that it's possible that he came across uh, discarded classified information from a prior briefing in a burn bag, which is uh, where information is collective and then subsequently destroyed. So I, you know, I would bet if in the investigation, we'll kind of let this all play out. But my sense is that based on his job, he was in a skiff and he probably came across information that was not properly or was going to subsequently be properly disposed of. So I want to read a couple of quotes from the New York Times reporting on this. Quote, a trail of digital evidence compiled by the Times leads to Airman Tashira. Airman Tashira's mother, Dawn, speaking outside her home in Massachusetts on Thursday, confirmed that her son was a member of the Air National Guard and said he had recently been working overnight shifts at a base on Cape Cod. Later, someone who appeared to be Airman Tashira drove onto the property in a red pickup truck. Now, John Miller uh, just told us that the FBI has been surveilling his house for some time. Does it concern you at all that New York Times reporters seem to have gotten to Tashira before the FBI did? Uh, you know, I, I have not really been following closely the specifics of the investigation. Just to make one thing clear is just because classified information is in the public domain doesn't mean it's declassified. And as a former uh, security clearance holder, I haven't dug too deeply into this story. Uh, but, you know, th- there are a, a number of different digital, you know, bits of it, exhaust and evidence. And I think one of the takeaways from this event is that this information may have been on the public Internet in a Discord server, uh, server for up to eight months. And that shows you the challenge that the counterintelligence folks have in terms of identifying once this information is leaked. And that is, I assume, going to be a key area of emphasis going forward is how do we really enhance the discoverability across the Internet of leaked intelligence? Yeah, I mean, that, that's one thing because obviously Discord is encrypted. Uh, but the other thing is who are the individuals that we're entrusting this information to? Uh, and based on yep. what we know about Tashira, he's, he's 21. He was in a gamer Discord group with a bunch of teenagers uh, there's some video that the Washington Post uh, reporters saw in which he's on a firing range showing up his gun using anti-Semitic and racist slurs, according to the Washington Post, at least if Tashira is the same person as OG, uh, according to the chat group uh, members. Um, we don't have better safeguards in place for the individuals that have access to burn bags. There are a system of controls in place. There are failures of those controls uh, all the time. And there is a system of, uh, of, of reporting that's built in, including regular refreshes of security clearances. I wouldn't focus necessarily on his age, that he's 21. We have 21-year-old warfighters all over the world that we entrust with sensitive information. This is a breakdown. There's no question that there will be a lot of introspection inside the intelligence community uh, and across the, the government of, of where were those breakdowns? How do we ensure that we tighten that system of military discipline that, that was referred to earlier to ensure that these things do not happen? The, the last thing, Jake, though, is the, 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 what's most critical here is that it's, it's not necessarily what we know that is so important. It's how we know it. Right. And how we know it, uh, my sense is that that is not implicated in these leaks. There will be cleanup on the what we know, but the how we know it uh, should hopefully remain uh, intact. I hope so. Chris Krebs, thank you so much. Appreciate your taking the time. Coming up next, an indictment, investigations, lawsuits, the legal troubles Donald Trump is facing as he up in New York once again is called before authorities.
In our politics lead, Donald Trump and his businesses are tangled up in an array of state and federal investigations and lawsuits. It can be a little difficult to keep track of everything, so let's briefly review. One, a Manhattan grand jury indicted Trump this month on 34 felony counts of falsifying business records. Two, Trump's being investigated by special counsel Jack Smith for his mishandling of classified documents. Three, Smith is also probing Trump's post-election actions in the lead-up to the January 6th insurrection. Four, Georgia prosecutors are considering criminal charges related to Trump's efforts to overturn his election loss in that state. Five, later this month, the New York jury will hear testimony in a civil defamation suit brought by former magazine columnist E. Jean Carroll, who accuses Trump of rape. I've lost count. One, two, three, four, five. This is six, I think, today. Trump sat for a deposition as part of a high-stakes civil case brought by New York Attorney General Letitia James, accusing him of falsifying financial statements. That's a lot. Let's bring in the Washington Post political investigations reporter Josh Gossie, along with former prosecutor Karen Friedman Agnafilo. She's also a CNN legal analyst. And Karen, let me start with you. Trump's attorneys say he is prepared to answer Letitia James's questions today. That's a notable departure from his previous refusals to respond during depositions before the suit was filed. What do you make of that, and do you believe it? Yeah, well, we'll see if 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 he actually does it or not and, and how direct he actually is. He says he's not going to take the fifth and he's going to attempt to answer these questions in this case. But it's interesting because I think this is a, a, a calculation he's making, because if he does take the fifth in a civil case, unlike a criminal case, that can be used against you. But it could also be used against you if he answers these questions in the criminal case. And don't forget, Alvin Bragg has said that this investigation, the parallel investigation into the valuation of the assets, uh, which is what the civil case that Attorney General Tish James is doing is still open criminally. So who knows? I, I I will see when the reporting comes out how how open he is. But I wouldn't be surprised if he says things like, "I don't remember," or "I no longer run those businesses," or "I was president." He doesn't want to be seen, I think, as taking the fifth and refusing to answer questions. But I highly doubt he's going to make admissions that will help the criminal case. And Karen, my understanding is the New York Attorney General Letitia James is seeking two hundred fifty million dollars and a ban on Trump and his adult children from being able to operate a business in New York, um, which obviously threatens the fate of his empire. How likely is it, do you think, that those sanctions would actually happen? It depends on what comes out at trial, obviously. It depends on how the evidence comes out and how the judge ends up ruling at the end of the day. I think it's pretty likely. According to the complaint, it's a very big sweeping complaint that Attorney General uh, Tish James has filed against him. And if she can prove all of that information and what's in there, I think he's in for a pretty heavy uh, sanction and uh, monetary damages here in New York. And Josh, uh, you have a great scoop in the post today about special counsel Jack Smith's interest in Trump campaign fundraising and fundraising documents from after the 2020 election and whether federal wire fraud laws were violated. Explain this to us. Right. So special counsel Jack Smith has sent out troves of subpoenas since the beginning of March to Trump campaign advisors, Republican operatives and consultants, uh, really trying to learn one thing. Those who approved and wrote and uh, were involved in crafting emails uh, after the election that subsequently raised the Trump operation more than $200 million dollars. Did they know these claims were fraudulent? Uh, Did they concede these claims were fraudulently to others? Did they concede these claims, uh, 
you know, in private and emails and texts and conversations with others. Uh, what they're trying to do, um, according to our sources who've seen, have some visibility into the investigation, is discern whether any of these people knowingly uh, went forward with claims that the election was false in a bid to raise money. If you remember that time, Jake, it was a cash bonanza for Trump's team. They were raising money hand over fist uh, in the weeks after the election. As he said, the election was stolen. And they said a lot of that money was going to go to an election defense fund, uh, which was never created. Um, and uh, most of that money did not go to anything to do with the election, uh, frankly. So uh, what they're trying to do now is to figure out if there's any illegality in the fundraising. Uh, they have not obviously proven anything yet. We'll see what happens. But these subpoenas are going to the heart of that. So in other words, the idea that they were pushing these election lies, which ultimately resulted uh, in January 6th, uh, the question is, if they knew those were lies and they raised $200 million from these poor Trump supporters uh, who keep on believing these lies, was that fraud because they knew it was false? That's the idea? Correct. That's the idea. That's what they're trying to look at, of whether any of the people who wrote, uh, signed off, were involved in putting these emails together uh, to raise money, uh, whether they there's proof that they knew they were not true. All right. Uh, interesting. Uh, Josh and Karen, thanks to both. You really appreciate it. Coming up next, new reporting about questionable financial ties between Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and that billionaire Republican donor who paid for his luxury vacations and trips. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, more questions about ties between Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and a Republican billionaire mega donor. Brand new reporting from ProPublica this afternoon suggests that Thomas may have violated a federal law by not disclosing a real estate transaction, and that transaction happened to be with this friend, Harlan Crow, who has spent millions on efforts to shape the law and the judiciary. He's the same Republican donor at the center of that previous bombshell ProPublica report last week, which revealed that Justice Thomas and his wife accepted luxury travel from Crow that he did not, that neither of them uh, disclosed. Uh, Josh Kaplan is the ProPublica reporter who's uncovered all this reporting around Justice Thomas. Josh, welcome back. Explain the significance of what you found here, this 2014 real estate transaction between Justice Thomas and Mr. Crow. Yeah, so we found that uh, Harlan Crow uh, bought property from Justice Thomas in a undisclosed real estate deal. Uh, Crow paid roughly $133,000 to uh, Thomas and his relatives for three properties, uh, one of which was the house, the, an old house that Thomas's mom was living in, and the other two were vacant lots down the street. Um, and Thomas did not disclose this, uh, which experts told us appears to be a clear violation of government ethics law. So as you said, I mean, last week we reported that um, Thomas had accepted numerous luxury trips from Crow. Um, private jet flights, uh, international yacht cruises, uh, all in secret. And Crow and Thomas responded to that reporting by saying that they were just close friends. Uh, but this is the first uh, direct, first known direct financial transaction between these two men. So correct me if I'm wrong, but in addition to not disclosing the sale of those properties in Savannah, Justice Thomas also had a space, a space on the disclosure form to report the identity of the buyer but he left it blank. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. He did not disclose the uh, sale and also did not disclose uh, who he was selling it to, which uh, you know, the judiciary's forms at the time uh, requested. 
Did you get any response from either Justice Thomas or Harlan Crow about your story? Uh, yes. So, well, not from Justice Thomas. We went to Thomas with detailed questions and he did not respond. Uh, but Crow did tell us that um, he approached the Thomases about buying these properties and that he intends to, you know, one day turn uh, Thomas's mother's house into a museum, uh, which, to be clear, uh, experts told us that Crow's intentions, uh, whatever they may be, are irrelevant to the legal question of Thomas's obligation to disclose this transaction. Uh, Crow also didn't directly address um, why he also bought two other properties from Thomas, the vacant lots down the road. Um, But he did say that he ultimately sold those to a builder uh, who was committed to improving the neighborhood. Is there, is there any sense that the ties between the two gentlemen could run even deeper than what we know? Um, to be completely honest with you, we didn't know about these ties uh, when we ran our story last week. Um, so, I mean, I, I can't say what will come out in the future, but we certainly intend to keep looking. All right, Josh Kaplan Kaplan with ProPublica, thank you so much. In a statement to CNN, Harlan Crow said said that he made the purchase at, quote, market rate based on many factors, including the size, quality, and livability of the dwellings, unquote. Coming up, the relationship going forward between Tennessee Republicans and the two Democrats who have now been officially reinstated in the state legislature after being kicked out of office. We'll speak live with one of them next. State Representatives Justin J. Pearson and Justin Jones are now both Tennessee state representatives once again. Pearson was sworn in this morning, Jones earlier this week, after they were expelled from the State House by Republicans last week for breaking decorum rules. Both Justins and their Democratic colleague Gloria Johnson, who survived the, her expulsion vote, protested on the House floor earlier this month after the Covenant school shooting in Nashville, where six innocent people were killed. And Tennessee Representative Justin Jones is with us now. Representative Jones, thanks so much for joining us. For the first time in a week, you and your two colleagues are all back alongside your fellow Democrats and the Republican majority that voted to expel you. Uh, How do you plan to work with them moving forward on issues, including gun reform? Yeah, well, thank you so much, Jake. It, um, It was great to be back with the Tennessee Three, all of us together in the People's House um, but it, it still is the same situation we're facing. Uh, today, we had a bill that would ban concepts of systemic racism from being taught on college campuses, and they would not even let members of our side of the aisle speak, you know, only two of us, and then they called the question and wouldn't allow debate. And so the, the, the issue remains that, we, you know, we do not allow substan- you know, substantial deliberation, debate, discussion on really important legislation here in Tennessee, including common sense gun legislation. And I'm happy to announce that today I filed Uh, my Protect Kids Not Guns Act. That is an omnibus bill looking at um, banning um, high-capacity magazines, assault weapons, um, red flag laws, and also safe storage laws. So the governor, uh, Republican Governor uh, Lee, uh, has said that he wants some gun reform uh, brought before him. I'm not sure. I believe he's kept it pretty vague, but one of the the things that I've heard, one of the uh, items I've heard individuals uh, discussing is possible a red flag laws so that individuals who are troubled, family members or, or colleagues can report them, possibly get guns out of their hands or keep them from getting uh, guns. I, I understand you, that the omnibus bill is your, is your hope, your dream, your, your, your lofty desire and what you think is necessary, but obviously you're in the minority. 
What about working with a Republican on a red flag law bill? Definitely. I think we're, 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 we're hoping to work with Republicans. I actually met with the governor a couple days ago uh, with the rest of the Nashville lawmakers. We met and we talked about common sense gun laws. Um, I told him that, you know, I really want to be a good faith partner in this work. Um, but there's members of his party, like I told the governor, that you're going to have to stand up to very extreme fringe fa uh, factions within the Republican Party who want no common sense gun um, safety laws. And so um, the Tennessee Firearms Association, the NRA, have already come out against the governor's very meager proposals. And so I told the governor it's going to take political risk and sacrifice. And maybe he's in a position for such a time as this. We need a leader and we need someone who's going to stand up to these extreme forces and special interest groups. The Tennessee uh, holler uh published today, released today, some audio from Republican state legislators meeting and getting mad at each other. Um, what was your response to that? What do you think was important from that leaked audio? That um, it was very just surreal to hear that, to hear the commentary and to realize that for them, they really are reenacting the Civil War. You heard uh, Representative Sapicki say, you know, we need to come hard against them, you know, because if, if we don't, Tennessee will fall and the Southeast will fall and the left will take over. And um, he said, you know, I hate that I have to see, you know, Jones in these sacred halls where the greats of Tennessee stood. And so you hear this mentality that is very extreme and very alarming. I mean, we're dealing with people who want to reenact the Civil War, who don't believe some, someone of, of, you know, like me or Representative Pearson, young black lawmakers even deserve to be in the legislature. Um, but you also hear them fighting amongst each other. I mean, I've heard from Republicans who are calling on the House Speaker to resign, Cameron Sexton. There's a lot of division within their caucus. You heard in that in that recorded conversation, um, you know, just the infighting and the dysfunction in the Republican Party here in Tennessee um, because they are, they, they've been controlled by these extreme forces. And so you had a Representative Zachary, you know, breaking down at the beginning of the call um, and just just up, up in arms that, that they did not all just fall, you know, in step behind the speaker's push to expel us. And it shows that they are not free to think for themselves either. That if you diverge from their caucus leadership, then you're seen as an outsider, like Representative Barrett is being seen now, Jody Barrett, who voted against expelling Gloria Johnson. Mm -hmm. And so it's very extreme um, mentality going on there. And, and um, it's very troubling. Democratic Tennessee uh, State Representative Justin Jones, thanks so much. And congratulations on being back in office. Thank you so much, Jake. It's great to be back. Coming up next, using kitchen countertops and patterns on a tile floor, how the New York Times was able to figure out who leaked the Pentagon documents hours before he was actually placed under arrest. I'll speak with one of those journalists next. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Big developments in our top story today. The FBI has arrested 21-year-old Jack Tashiri. He's a member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard. Arrested in connection with that leak of classified Pentagon intelligence documents. A U.S. government source familiar with this case tells CNN that Tashiri was under surveillance by the FBI for the past few days. And that they had planned to arrest him at work today, but ended up taking him into custody at his home after reporters from the New York Times knocked on the door to his house and apparently alerted him that wasn't a good idea to go to work today. Reports from the Washington Post, the New York Times, and Bellingcat show that Tashira allegedly led a small online chat group on the encrypted platform Discord, often used by gamers, probably even your kids. Those who know Tashira say he was just trying to impress his friends online, keep them in the loop on classified intelligence, which he then allegedly swiped from highly sensitive briefing emails and apparently leaked to his small group over the course of several months. Less than two hours ago, we're told Tashira arrived at FBI offices in Boston, where he will make his first court appearance 
Tomorrow, the FBI also is waiting to execute a search warrant for Tashira's mother's and father's homes. We are told they expect to find numerous weapons in the search based on his social media posts. Our coverage starts today with CNN's Natasha Bertrand, who's at the Pentagon for us. And Natasha, what is the Pentagon saying about Tashira's arrest? And how are they explaining why he had access to such highly classified information? Yeah, Jake. Well, the Pentagon has not yet issued a statement on the arrest of Jack Teixeira itself. They have simply referred to the Justice Department for any comment on that. But they took a lot of questions today, the Pentagon press secretary did, about just why this this, uh, 21-year-old Air National Guardsman was allowed, apparently, to have access to such classified material. And what Pentagon Press Secretary Ryder told reporters is that essentially the military entrusts uh, highly classified information to uh, people of all ages, including very young service members. It essentially depends on what your job is and what you need to do that job. He gave the example, of course, of very young service members uh, leading people into combat. He said that basically it doesn't matter what your age is. It is just the, the the job that you need to do. And so the Pentagon did say, however, that they are taking steps to mitigate any potential leaks like this in the future. They are limiting the amount of information, for example, that they are disseminating widely across the U.S. government. We have been told that people who were receiving these kinds of highly classified documents over the last several months have simply stopped receiving them in recent days as the Pentagon does begin to whittle down its distribution list. But look, this uh, this uh, 21-year-old guardsman, he joined in 2019 He's very new to this. And he was a cyber transport systems journeyman. He was essentially responsible for IT uh, for this particular wing of the Air National Guard in Massachusetts. So it is totally unclear at this point whether he had access to these documents himself, whether he took them, how he printed them, if he even printed them himself. Just a lot of questions here that investigators are going to be looking at, Jake, as they look into his background and motive. Yeah, I don't think the idea, the question is about being 21. I think it's a question of, like, he's obviously, if his story is to be believed, incredibly immature. So why would somebody who's immature, if that's preferential language to your friends at the Pentagon, why would he get access to the classified documents? Natasha Bertrand at the Pentagon for us. Thank you so much. I want to bring in Maliki Brown. He's a senior story producer on the New York Times visual investigations team. They worked with Bellingcat to follow the trail of digital evidence that led them to Jack Tashira. Uh, So, um, Maliki, connect the digital dots for us. You guys used an online gaming profile under Tashira's name and and also pictures of a kitchen countertop inside his childhood home. Explain how that was relevant. Well, yesterday, Jake, uh, we obtained uh, a tranche of 27 uh, new documents, uh, classified documents, and uh, some of your viewers will remember the the first tranche were photographed uh, among hunting equipment. These ones were photographed in a different location on a granite countertop, which was intriguing to us. Um, at the same time as we were doing that, uh, we were working with Eric Toller, who works at Bellingcat, and our visual investigations team um, to run down some of the gamers that we knew um, played together, that we knew the games and the platforms that they were on, uh, and see if there was anybody of interest there who may have more documents, but also who might be person that they refer to as the OG, the original guy who leaked the documents. Um, and so there was one particular person who, who caught our interest. Um, it was Jack. And, um, you know, using the gaming profiles, we were able to um, find connections with other more popular social media websites, which, of course, had um, family photographs uh, online, including that counter 
that, that countertop, that granite countertop. Um, and looking more closely, you could see it was the same countertop, the same kitchen. Yeah, let's let's show that again, just if we could go to the first picture, guys, if you could, um, uh, of, of the of the document itself. There it is. It's not here. What you need to understand here is it's it's not. Forget the document for a second. Look at the table, and then look at the floor, and then go to the next picture, and you'll see that the table and the floor are what uh, Maliki and his brilliant uh, sleuths at the Times uh, used to figure out it was Jack Tashira. Um, Maliki, what other digital evidence did you you and your team use to track him down? Well, it was a combination of details that we got from some of the gamers in this community uh, that we spoke to last weekend uh, who provide uh, provided personal information about um, the leaker, uh, his, his habits, the fact that he was um, a gun enthusiast, um, exchanging equipment, um, you know, some things about his, his personal beliefs um, that they often shared um, racist memes in their private chat group. And in fact, the reason that they had a, a private chat group is that some of them were kicked off another more public forum for their racism. Um, and so they, they created this in, intimate space of trust into which he started sharing these documents. Um, and so th- that was profile information and background information that allowed us to then, to then find where people were playing these games um, and some of the same uh, usernames uh, from the private server who were, who were also playing it in more public spaces. Um, and that, that was the starting point. We also found um, information confirming that uh, he was in the intelligence wing um, of the, the National Guard in Massachusetts. Uh, and that he was promoted um, to first-class airman last July. Um, and according to the uh, one of the sources that we've been talking to, uh, he he started leaking documents uh, several months after that into the mm-hmm. uh, into the Discord chat. Maliki Brown, great sleuthing by you and your team. Thanks so much for your time today. Let's bring in Democratic Congressman Jim Hines of Connecticut. He is the ranking Democrat on the House Select Committee on Intelligence. Uh, Congressman, thanks for joining us. We talked to you, uh, the Chairman uh, Turner, uh, in the previous hour. Let's start with this arrest today. He's been identified as 21-year-old Air National Guardsman Jack Tashir. Uh, t- t- what more can you tell us about him? Yeah, um, you know, Jake, there's just so much that makes me crazy about this story. I mean, yeah, let's talk for a second about the arrest and the story that you just ran, right? The New York Times knocks on his door. I mean, I just, you know, I've spent a lot of time around the intelligence community, a lot of time around the FBI. I spent a lot, you know, I have a lot of respect for them. But the New York Times beat the FBI to this person, right? And the reason that's serious is because what if he has suitcases full of documents and he's in the process of sort of sending them out, mailing them out, faxing them out? What if he hands all those documents to the um, to the New York Times? Now we've got sort of an interesting constitutional issue. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still, as you can tell, not exactly a calm about that fact. And then, of course, is the fact that this is apparently, allegedly, a 21-year-old uh, uh, kid, Air National Guardsman, who was trying to impress his friends. This is not exactly Beijing and Russia's best uh, cyber operators doing here. And so clearly there's an awful lot of work, a lot, of, a lot of congressional oversight work we need to do to fix these systems that are constantly allowing, or at least regularly allowing, our secrets uh, to get out into the wild. And, and beyond that, uh, we just heard uh, from Malachi Brown, the New York, one of the New York Times researchers that tracked him down. And we also heard from the Washington Post uh, that this individual, uh, Jack Tashira, um, is somebody that seems to hold anti-Semitic and racist views. And this chat room was partly at least founded uh, for that. So, I, I, you know, we'll find out more about that in the days and weeks to come. But 
I mean, the other thing, uh, Congressman, that, that you haven't mentioned yet, not that you're going to shy away from it, is that this information, this classified information, was reportedly on Discord for months. And I don't have to tell you, because I don't know it, you might know the answer, how, how many tens of billions of dollars the U.S. intelligence community gets each year from the American taxpayer, but it really seems like there's, there was a, a lot of people dropped the ball here. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. You just touched on the third reason I want to light my hair on fire right now, which is, um, you know, again, this wasn't exactly advanced tradecraft. These apparently were documents that were folded up, stuck into a pocket, photographed. And that raises all sorts of questions, right? You know, first of all, how was this guy uh, able, and this is all allegedly, right? We don't know the facts yet. How was he able to print them out? How was he, be able, to, how was he able to remove them from a secure facility? And as you point out, um, we had an unclassified briefing with the Department of Defense yesterday in which we were told that the Department of Defense became aware that these documents were out in the wild on April 5th, and there is reason to believe that they might have been out there for months. Now, in a, you know, in a world of advanced AI and you know, chat GPT and these incredible technological capabilities, the notion that highly classified stuff was just plain out there being traded like you know, baseball cards, and we didn't know about it, again, a subject for some serious congressional inquiry. Well, the other thing that I don't know uh, the answer to, yesterday uh, reporters were being told, and I don't know if it was by the Pentagon or by the intelligence community, but somebody in the Biden administration was suggesting that they think maybe this was done, this was the child of uh, somebody who had access to this information. Now, maybe that was a false story, so Tashir wouldn't, wouldn't suspect that they were on to him, possibly, or, or maybe they really have no idea what the hell's going on. Yeah, that doesn't do it for me, Jake. You know, I've got two children, too. And I and I can tell you with absolute certainty that in the 12 years I've been working on intelligence matters and having access to classified information, that has never even come close to happening. So, again, if, you know, there's other culpable people here, we'll want them uh, to, to face the consequences. But this is a system and a process which obviously failed in a very substantial way. And that's where the Congress comes in. Our job is oversight. And you can bet we're going to be doing it. Yeah. And I have to say, uh, well, first of all, you know, good luck getting uh, my kids in interested in anything I do for a living. But beyond that, um, there is the bigger issue of this individual allegedly has done serious damage to the U.S. government here in terms of what our enemies know about what the United States is up to in terms of awareness of what the Chinese are doing, awareness of what the Wagner Group, the Russian-affiliated militia are doing. And also uh, Ukraine, South Korea, Israel, mad to learn that the United States is, is spying on them and also that the United States is not really very careful with the secrets that they've picked up. Well, that's the part. Look, uh, he may have done harm to the United States government. I, and, and the reason I have a little bit of emotion in this conversation is because I've seen a lot of these leaks before. I've never seen a leak like this that may, and I do emphasize may, have a real effect on the battlefield in Ukraine. If, in fact, sources have, and methods have been compromised, that could translate into dead Ukrainians that didn't need to be dead because we didn't get the process uh, and, and the protection of that information right. And yes, as you point out, um, now look, uh, you you know, other than within the five eyes, you know, Canada, UK, New Zealand, et cetera, Australia, um, I think our allies know that we uh, that we keep a track, you know, that we're interested in what they're talking about. The fact that the United States might be uh, spying on other countries will come as a surprise to precisely nobody. But um, we rely on those countries to share their sensitive information with us. That's what makes us good at what we do. And I would forgive the South Koreans or the Israelis or the French or whoever from saying we may not be able to share our most sensitive information with the Americans because they 
they can't seem to keep it out of, you know, 21 year olds hands or ex-presidents garages or people named reality winner or whatever. I mean, again, there's just too much of this going on that it will ultimately compromise not just the Ukrainian battlefield, but our ability to work with our allies to keep the American people uh, safe. All right. The top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, Congressman Jim Himes of Connecticut. Thank you so much. Good to see you. Let's bring in CNN's Josh Campbell and CNN's Evan Perez, as well as former Department of Homeland Security Assistant Secretary Juliette Kayyem. Josh, what do we know about Jack Deshira, the alleged leaker, and how would an arrest like this have been planned and executed? Well, so this 21-year-old was a member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard. He was a cyber transport systems journeyman. In layman's terms, that's a cyber guy. He worked on IT systems, uh, both computer systems uh, in offices, but also on aircraft, on electronic warfare systems. Uh, and so there obviously is a question about how he got access to this information. Was he able to, through that role, gather that information? That is part of this ongoing investigation. To the question about the arrest, and I want to show you that just dramatic video uh, we saw from our affiliate there, the aerial view of the FBI taking this suspect into custody. This is quite textbook. What you're seeing on your screen is the FBI tactical operators are calling the suspect back to them. He has his uh, hands on top of his head. That's to ensure that he doesn't try to reach for a weapon. And rather than agents rushing in, which is often more dangerous, they're bringing him back to the, the rear of that Bearcat vehicle. Uh, and then he is ultimately taken into custody. What FBI agents do, and I can tell you this from experience, when you're preparing to execute an arrest, you do an operation plan. You try to determine what threat does this person possibly pose. In this case, the reason why we're seeing such a heavy uh, footprint here by the FBI SWAT team is we know, based on the Washington Post reporting, that uh, this individual was described as a gun enthusiast, had been to shooting ranges. He's obviously a member of the military. So that would all factor into the amount of force that you bring to bear to try to take someone into custody. I will also note, and you know, due respect to the congressman who we just heard from, we don't know that the media beat the FBI to the suspect. In fact, in so many espionage cases, we've seen the FBI special surveillance group set up on a location. In this case, if you're going to take someone into custody, you would rather do that in the light of day rather than trying to breach that home. And so a lot of questions remain there. And then the final point I'll note is that although he's still he's in custody now, the FBI's work is far from over. They'll still have to go through his residence, through his place of work in order to determine are there additional classified information, uh, you know, documents that could be in those locations. The damage assessment still very much underway, Jake. Well, to defend the congressman for one second. You're right that we don't know that the New York Times figured out his identity before the intelligence community or the FBI did, but we do know that the New York Times uh, got in contact with him uh, before the FBI did. And in fact, uh, when you think about how long this classified information was out there on Discord, uh, I would say the New York Times was operating a lot faster than the FBI, but I know you used to work there, so, you know. Well, I just point that out, just when it comes to actually taking someone into custody, right. they're going to want to check all the boxes and, no, no, you know, no, no. until they go overt. So, I hear you. Well, a, lot, a lot for us to learn, obviously. It's not a, pr- it's not a proud period for the intelligence community, sure. let's, oh, let's, uh, let's say that. Juliet, you were a Homeland Security Advisor for former yeah. Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick. You oversaw both the Army and Air National Guard there. Is there a reason that this individual who, yes, he's 21, but beyond that, he seems rather immature, uh, would have been trusted with access to this information. It depends on what the nature of his job was. So to call him an IT guy is is sort of is broad, right? Is he the person fixing the wires or is he the person uh, uh, transporting classified information to, say, more senior level people? It is just simply unclear at this stage 
why he would have had access to not just the content, but his ability to print it, right? Because if he's just the IT guy, he's just a pass-through. So the questions I have, having you know, worked with the National Guard, worked with them in this, in, in this intelligence unit, is he recently got a promotion, right? So what is that telling me? That's telling me that, that someone had confidence in him, that possibly they did a background check. Why are they not capturing this really weird behavior online? And I'll be honest with you, Jake, the idea that he was just trying to impress friends when they have like racist and anti-Semitic stuff on it, I'm not buying it, right? There's, there's the idea that you're going to, this is an apolitical leak, who knows, right, at this stage. And so he's releasing this stuff, no one's capturing it. And I think this is the or, or or questioning him. I think the bigger question, of course, is the, the one that everyone's asking, which is we talk a lot about what we classify. Once it's classified, we now need to start talking about who has access to it. We are doing reporting that the Pentagon is clearly doing a sweep right now. That may not be the best thing for our national security. We may be denying entities that should have access to this uh, uh, from seeing what they should see. From my position, from a state homeland security uh, position, is unless they were in federal uh, uh, capacity, unless they were working to fight a war, I don't see why this information is floating as it as it seems to have been. And Evan, what do we know about the charges to Shira faces? I would imagine uh, espionage. Well, that that may be part of the the charges. You know, at the outset, right now, what the attorney general said uh, just uh, this afternoon, Jake, was that this is uh, it's going to be disseminating uh, classified national security uh, information, and that's a very serious charge. And it all depends on what uh, you know how they charge it. But every single document is you know could be a, a separate charge, and so he's he's looking at a, a very serious uh, set of circumstances ahead of him, and 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 so we know that the FBI and, and the the prosecutors uh, in Eastern District of Virginia, which is where he is uh, likely to be brought eventually to face these charges, um, you know they're working right now to put together a case. Um, one of the things that I think you know Juliet and, and and Josh have been pointing to, and actually you know the congressman before was that the, de- the, the, the Defense Department is sort of one of the weakest links of the system that we have in place. You know, the government has spent millions of dollars. I've spent a lot of time covering this, you know, millions of dollars uh, after the Snowden leaks, right? And they have done a lot in the intelligence community to put better systems, for example, to track your printer. Pr- anybody who prints something, there is a tracking for that. Anybody who accesses document, there's a record of who accesses these documents. What uh, seems to not happen is that the Department of Defense doesn't really know a lot of, about the people that it is entrusting with this. And so that's where the failure seems to be in, in this case, Jake. Yeah. And I think there's also a question is why would anybody with the National Guard in Massachusetts need to know anything about what's going on in Ukraine necessarily? There were thousands of people who had access to these documents. Yeah. Well, Josh Campbell, Juliet Kayyem and Evan Perez, three of the best. Thank you so much for joining us. Coming up, we've got breaking news out of Florida where state lawmakers have just passed a brand new abortion ban. Governor DeSantis is expected to sign it. That's ahead. And we're back with more on the arrest of 21-year-old National Guard Airman Jack Tashira, who authorities say leaked troves of highly classified documents over the course of months, an act that has damaged U.S. relationships with allies and revealed key pieces of intelligence to America's foes. With me now is Evelyn Farkas. She's the 
former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. She now heads um, the McCain uh, Group. Um, uh, I'm forgetting the exact name. McCain Institute. I apologize. So, um, uh, Ms. Farkas, what's your reaction to this story? 21 years old, Air Na- National Guard airman, had access to the sensitive classified information, leaked it on a group chat on Discord. It was apparently there for months. He's been arrested today. Obviously, innocent until proven guilty. But assuming this is what it is, uh, what it looks like, what do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, Jake, there are so many elements to this. I First of all, I tweeted, you know, this is kind of the, the loneliness epidemic, which was something that the Surgeon General called kind of a crisis that we're experiencing in the United States meets COVID, right, where loneliness gets worse. And then you pile on top of it the age of impunity, where there are a lot, a lot of articles, a lot of things in the media about the former president and others mishandling top secret and secret, you know, intelligence documents and information. And so far, you know, a lot of people are, seem to be getting away with it. Um, and if you're a young man, lonely, trying to make friends and, and demonstrate that you have some power, you might be tempted because you think you can get away with it. So that's what it looks like on the face of it. Obviously, it's a disaster. Why was this young National Guard guy allowed access to slides from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? I mean, that should be very restricted. Um, And, you know, whether you have a clearance or not, there's also another standard, which is need to know. And I'm I'm a little bit afraid that after 9-11, maybe the intelligence community went overboard and allowed too many people access in an effort to to tear down silos. So um, Pentagon spokesperson Patrick Ryder today, when it was pointed out that this individual was 21, he noted accurately that the Pentagon, the United States government, gives young people in the military a lot of responsibility. They, They lose their lives in battle. Uh, you know, and and so being 21 and having uh, a lot of responsibility is not unusual for the military. But maybe you think rules need to change in the military, uh, given what happened today and just in terms of access to sensitive intelligence. I mean, Jake, I don't think it's an age issue. There are plenty of 21 year olds who understand what the law is, that they can't break the law and share classified intelligence. And they and there are plenty of 21 year olds with excellent judgment who can lead and do lead troops in war. So the issue is not age. The issue is clearly if this guy had a clearance. I mean, it is a question. He didn't have good judgment, um, but he also did not have a need to know all of this information. And so that is what has me most concerned. Evelyn Farkas of the McCain Institute. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Florida lawmakers just passed a brand new abortion ban just hours after the Justice Department asked the Supreme Court to intervene over the fight over medication abortion. All the latest next. Let's go to Florida now. Just this afternoon, the state legislature passed a six-week abortion ban. The bill, when signed, which Governor Ron DeSantis has already signaled he will do, will make abortion access even more difficult in the Sunshine State, which right now outlaws abortion after 15 weeks. CNN Steve Contorno is with us from St. Petersburg, Florida. And Steve, the current 15-week ban is on the books, has no exception for rape and incest, but this law is a six-week ban but it would include exceptions for rape and incest? Yeah, that's right, Jake, but only to a point, and opponents of this bill say it will still make Florida one of the most restrictive states in the country to get an abortion. Let me go through what this bill actually does. As you said, it bans abortion in most cases after six weeks. There are exceptions for rape, 
incest, and for victims of human trafficking up until week 15. But after week 15, the only exceptions are for if the life of the mother's at risk or if there's a fatal defect. And even then, you have to get two doctors to sign off on it. It also prohibits abortion by telehealth and via mail, so you can't get medication sent to you by the Postal Service in Florida. And then it also requires the state Supreme Court uh, to take action or a change in the Constitution before this takes effect. There's a quirk in Florida's Constitution that includes a privacy clause, and in the past, the state Supreme Court has interpreted that to include uh, a right to abortion. But that Supreme Court has shifted dramatically in recent years, and now DeSantis has actually appointed four of the six members, and he'll get to appoint another one soon. So, Jake, abortion rights advocates believe that this Supreme Court is likely to overturn that privacy clause, and, and really, at that point, it'll be a six-week ban in the state. I, I just saw polling suggesting that it, it's a, a majority of the American people oppose a six-week ban, and that even among Republicans... It's like 45-45 against and in favor of a six-week ban. Uh, I assume that Governor DeSantis, in addition to supporting the principles uh, behind this bill, thinks this is going to help him politically, perhaps? Well, certainly, if he's going to enter the Republican primary for president, that it, this is an issue that is often a litmus test. He's going to be going up against President Donald Trump, who appointed several of the Supreme Court justices that overturned Roe v. Wade. Uh, but... Like you said, this is an issue that Democrats believe has given them an advantage and given them some some tailwinds in recent elections. We just saw what happened in the Wisconsin Supreme Court race there and a whole bunch of midterm races. Abortion loomed large as well. But in Florida, where Republicans control both chambers by a large margin, if DeSantis didn't take action, it would have been an issue for him in the GOP primary, Jake. All right, Steve Contorno uh, in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida. Thanks so much. Attorney General Merrick Garland is preparing to take the fight over the abortion pill to the U.S. Supreme Court. This comes after an appeals court declined to ban the abortion drug Mifepristone in a ruling late last night, but it made access to the drug more difficult. CNN's Joan Biskupic is with us to explain. Joan, what did uh, Attorney General Garland have to say about bringing this case before the Supreme Court? And what's the timeline here? Sure. Good afternoon, Jake. This is what uh, the Attorney General said in a statement around noon. The Justice Department strongly disagrees with the Fifth Circuit's decision. We will be seeking emergency relief from the Supreme Court to defend the FDA's scientific judgment and to protect Americans' access to safe and effective reproductive care. Now, Jake, we haven't seen the full filing yet, but I imagine that uh, the attorney general will take strong issue with yet another court second-guessing the FDA's uh, scientific expertise here. Uh, as you know, the, the validity of the drug dates to the year 2000, and then the restrictions on access that are at issue, they date to 2016. So we've got a lot in place, and just a reminder that this medication abortion protocol is the most common form of, uh, that women are using today in America to end their pregnancies. So there's a lot at stake here. And, you know, it's now going back to the Supreme Court that completely eliminated the constitutional right to abortion and left it to the states. So medication abortion is a very crucial part of that ability for access. Also for uh, women who have suffered miscarriages, uh, you rely on mifepristone. As we mentioned, this all comes after the ruling from the appeals court last night which didn't ban mifepristone, but kept restrictions around the drug. What do those restrictions yeah, look like? Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, one would be just in terms of how, how a woman could actually 
obtained the drug. Uh, since 2016, there was a, no more, longer an in-person requirement after a woman had actually met with a physician. Now we're back to if, this, if the, everything stays the way the Fifth Circuit wants it over the next 24 hours, uh, no longer could a woman get the drug by mail after the initial consultation with a physician. So that's one thing. And the second thing is the window for availability uh, would decrease generally from currently 10 weeks down to seven weeks of pregnancy. So those are, those are significant access issues that would be rolled back if the Supreme Court does not stop the effect of the two lower court uh, decisions. Joan Biskupic, thanks so much. Just ahead, the Women's Tennis Association just reversed course on its decision to suspend tournaments in China because of the concerns about the safety of one of its stars. Why did they do that? That's next. In our sports lead, the Women's Tennis Association says it will resume hosting tournaments in China. You might remember that it had previously suspended events in China in 2021 over concerns about the safety of tennis player Peng Shuai. Peng disappeared from public view in November 2021 after she accused a high-ranking Chinese government official of sexually assaulting her. In a statement, the WTA explained its decision, saying, quote, After 16 months of suspended tennis competition in China and sustained efforts at achieving our original requests, the situation has shown No sign of changing. We have concluded we will never fully secure those goals, and it will be our players in tournaments who ultimately will be paying an extraordinary price for their sacrifices, unquote. Peng has not been seen in public since a series of carefully orchestrated appearances during the Beijing Olympics in February of last year. Joining us now are two former professional tennis players, Renee Stubbs and Patrick McEnroe. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Renee, the WTA received a lot of praise for its principled stand, but 16 months later, mired in the stalemate, the organization has retreated. What do you make of this move? Yeah, I mean, listen, Jake, I have to say that for me, this comes down to finances. That's what it comes down to. I think that, you know, the WTA will probably look back on this in some respects and you have to be proud of them for the stance that they took originally. But I think a little bit of lack of strategy in the in the understanding of what if you don't get what you want? Is this where we're going to be? And this is exactly where they've gotten to, because to think that they could strong arm a country like China into doing what they wanted to do uh, was, you know, a a rather large stretch, uh, putting it mildly. So I think this comes down to finances and that's why they're going back. Well, maybe they they were hoping that others would follow their lead. Um, uh, Patrick, the WTA says that despite returning to China, they're not forgetting Peng Shui, but isn't that exactly what they're kind of doing? We, We still don't have independent, verifiable evidence that she's safe and free. Well, Steve Simon, Jake, who's the CEO of the WTA Tour, WTA Tour, I have a lot of respect for. I think he went out on a limb when, let's be honest, most, most other sports organizations wouldn't do it. The NBA wouldn't do it. And big companies don't do it. I mean, look at all the business we do with China. So at the end of the day, I think it was really the only move the WTA could make. I think when they do go back there, they'll have the ability for their players to speak out to make to at least attempt to make this an issue. Now the men's tour, the ATP tour, never stepped up. They never joined in with the WTA, which I had hoped that they would do throughout this process. So while it was a little bit of a hit in the gut to me as a tennis person and as someone who was so proud of what the WTA did when I heard this news, Jake, you have to realize is it so much about China 
or is it really about what we all know it's about? It's about money. And Renee, uh, Human Rights Watch released a statement on the decision saying, quote, the road to expose the Chinese government's human rights abuses and hold it accountable is difficult and often incurs a cost, and it's not a straight road, unquote. Do you think um, the WTA backtracking means that the boycott was ultimately in vain and for naught, or was something achieved? Oh, well, I mean, only, you know, history will answer those questions, won't they, really? But, I mean, we're in the same exact situation we were really were a couple of years ago. Um, I mean, the word is that, you know, friends or friends of hers or acquaintances are saying that she's doing okay in Beijing, but really we haven't, as uh, Patrick said and you, you said, we haven't verified it one-on-one with her. Steve Simon or anyone from the WTA has actually not spoken to Peng Shui, so they don't really know how she is. So it's kind of interesting that we're, we're talking about this a couple of years later. And let's face it, a lot of this is also the WTA could not play in China over the last few years because also because of COVID restrictions. So it's kind of interesting now that those COVID restrictions are sort of being a little bit lax at the end of this year. So that allows them to go back and play without those restrictions. So it's kind of a little bit of like, what was it all for in the end? Patrick, if you were still playing, uh, would you participate in the Chinese tournaments, do you think? Yeah, I think I would, Jake. To be honest, I think you're a professional athlete. You're a player. Look, we saw what the what Brittany Grinder did, right? Who got taken hostage uh, in prison in Russia. She, many basketball players go there to make a living, to make money. As a professional tennis player, we go to China. We go to plenty of uh, countries in the Middle East, which have some sketchy. Uh, human rights violations going on in those countries, yet many tennis players go there because it's part of what you do. And I think the way you rationalize it, Jake, as an athlete and as a player, number one, this is part of my job, and number two, if by going there, which, by the way, is a big part of the WTA's argument, by going back there, can we help influence change in the long run? As Renee noted, that's a question that we can't answer right now, but I think in, in some instances, Jake, we've got to play ball, we've got to try to work with China. We went to the Middle East for the World Cup as well for Qatar. We know all the issues they had over there, yet the event, the World Cup, was extremely successful. And the soccer players, guess what they did? They played soccer. Yep. Patrick and Renee, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. Coming up, flares and sirens ripping through high-end designer stores as massive protests erupt throughout Paris once again. In our world lead now, you're looking at stunning scenes from across France on day 12 of nationwide protests over the Macron government's pension reforms, which would hike the retirement age from 62 to 64 in order to ensure the retirement system stays solvent. Today, mostly peaceful demonstrations were punctuated by violent clashes. Louis Vuitton's owner's headquarters were ransacked and trash piled up once again. CNN's Fred Plaikin is in the midst of the chaos in Paris ahead of Friday's crucial court ruling that is set to make the pension bill a law. Outbursts of anger rip across France. I just got a full load of tear gas. Police in Paris charging a crowd of demonstrators. Flares and sirens taking over the headquarters of luxury giant LVMH, which owns the likes of Louis Vuitton, Dior and Tiffany's. Chants from rail workers echo through the halls of the metro. Trash bins blocking off schools and streets with garbage set ablaze. 
These are the sights and sounds of rage by some protesters stirring tensions in what was largely a peaceful day of protest across the country. French citizens, young and old, coming together for the 12th day of nationwide outrage against President Emmanuel Macron's controversial pensions bill, which would raise the retirement age from 62 to 64. I would lie if I was telling you that there is no fatigue. We are tired, but mobilization is like a marathon. It's the last kilometers at the end that are the hardest. While protesters say they are here for the long run, the final hurdle for the bill comes Friday at the country's Constitutional Council. The contested reform will either be greenlit, partly scrapped, or, in a highly unlikely situation, entirely thrown out. The court's decision will bring to an end a month of deliberations. However, French unions and protesters say they are going to continue to fight the reform, regardless of the ruling. And Jake, that decision is set to come down in the late afternoon hours of tomorrow. And if indeed the Constitutional Council deems that law to be constitutional, it would go into effect this September, Jake. All right, Fred Pletkin in Paris for us. Thank you so much. The world lead, a Massachusetts Air National Guardsman, now under arrest, accused of leaking classified U.S. documents. CNN's Wolf Blitzer is covering this next in the Situation Room. Wolf, what's coming up at the top of the hour? Jake, uh, the arrest of this U.S. Air National Guard has been in connection with the Pentagon leaks case, raising all sorts of very important questions about the security of America's military secrets. We'll discuss that with a key member of the House Intelligence Committee, who is also a U.S. military veteran, Congressman Jason Crow. We'll get his reaction to new details that are, mer- that are emerging right now about the suspect, his possible motive, and what happens next in this investigation. It's all coming up, Jake, right at the top of the hour, right here in the Situation Room. All right, we'll be watching. We'll see you in a few minutes in uh, the Situation Room. Thanks so much. Coming up, new flash flooding warnings in Fort Lauderdale after the area is still drying out from a one in a thousand year rain. Stay with us. In our national lead, a new flash flood warning just issued for the Fort Lauderdale area of Florida. As even more heavy rain moves in, this is on top of more than two feet of rain that swamped that area in just a few hours yesterday in a once-in-1,000-year weather event. CNN's Carlos Suarez is in Fort Lauderdale for us. And Carlos, all this rain is creating a dangerous situation there. That's exactly right, Jake. The last thing that the city of Fort Lauderdale needs right now is more rain, especially after more than two feet of it fell yesterday. The rain began this afternoon and is going to go into the night. This is some of the worst flooding we have seen. You can see just what we're dealing with out here. Over by Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport, just to the south of us, we're told two weak tornadoes hit that part of Broward County yesterday causing some minimal damage. Now, water rescue operations have been taking place here in Fort Lauderdale the entire day. We're talking about various law enforcement agencies as well as fire departments going door to door, trying to make sure that anyone that is trapped inside of their home can safely get out. As for when Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport might reopen, officials hope to get a better sense of that overnight. But Jake, I gotta tell you, depending on how this rainfall event goes into tonight, well, then that will determine whether or not the airport reopens sometime tomorrow. Jake. All right. Carlos Suarez in Fort Lauderdale. Thank you. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN if you ever miss an episode of the show. You can listen to The Lead once you get your podcasts all two hours just sitting there like a delicious banana split. 
Our coverage continues now, as I told you earlier, with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in a place I like to call the Situation Room right next door. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.